Meanwhile, an interview with Joe Phillips, artist of Justice League International, special number one, cover dated 1990. And welcome to a very special episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. And if you are a devoted listener to this podcast, well, then welcome back. And if you're new around here, welcome to the Embassy. And for you new folks, uh, the way this works is each month on the podcast, we recap and discuss the Justice League comics published from around 1987 to 1992. This is when the main writers were Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. And we're going issue by issue, month by month, in release order, covering the Justice League America title, Justice League Europe, Justice League Quarterly, all the various spinoffs, one-shots, and such. Now, each episode, I bring along guest hosts to help me cover the issues, and this ever-changing roster of guests includes different voices from either the podcasting community, fellow JLI fans, or even several comics professionals. So far, we've covered through issue number 35 of Justice League America and issue number 11 of Justice League Europe. In our coverage, we've reached the point where Justice League International Special Number 1 was published. Now, this is an interesting comic because while it bears the Justice League International name and it includes some JLI members, the comic is essentially issue number 12 and a half of the ongoing Mr. Miracle series. Now, this story slots right in between issues number 12 and 13 of the Mr. Miracle series, and the creative team on this JLI special is the same as the Mr. Miracle book, with one exception. Keith Giffen wrote the plot for the special and provided the breakdowns. Other than Keith, though, it's the normal Mr. Miracle creative team. Now, let me clarify, though. It's not a bad thing at all that this is a stealth issue of Mr. Miracle. In fact, the story involves the JLI, and it will impact the JLI series for months to come. So it's really relevant, and it deserves to bear the JLI name. And given the nature of the story, the Mr. Miracle creative team really are the right folks to be telling the story. Now here's the cool part. Today, our guest to help us discuss JLI special number one is none other than the penciler of the comic himself, Mr. Joe Phillips. Joe was the regular penciler on the Mr. Miracle series at the time, and he penciled this special. He was kind enough to sit down with me, and we chatted for about an hour about the issue and about his career. It was an absolute blast, and I think you're really going to enjoy the discussion. Now, before we get to the interview, though, uh, we need to thank our sponsors, and then I'll do a brief recap of the issue. This episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part with your Patreon support. You know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows and online hosting and other services, it cost a lot of money. And it got to the point where us hosts, we really couldn't afford it anymore. So we started the Patreon and asked for your help, and you guys really stepped up. I'm telling you, if it weren't for the Patreon and your support, this network would not still be on the air. So we sincerely appreciate it. So if you're enjoying the JLI Podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and consider supporting the Firewater Podcast network. Now, we sincerely appreciate everyone's support, and at certain tiers, you get thanked on your show of choice, just like these folks. Our thanks to Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, remember, as we get into this, folks, we want you to join the conversation, whether it's about the comic or Joe's career. Get out on the social medias and share your thoughts. You can go to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your comments on this episode show post, or go out on Twitter. You can tag us at JLI Podcast, or on Facebook, we're Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. And we really do want to hear from you. You know, the mission of this podcast has always been about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. 
I look forward to hearing from you. All right, let's get into the comic, folks. It is Justice League International Special Number One, or as the Indicia lists, Justice League Special Number One. Interesting. Uh, Publishers DC Comics cover dated. It just says 1990, but it was on the shelves December 19th, 1989. It's extra length, so it's 48 pages, and cover price reflects that it is a dollar fifty six shining quarters. Covers pencil by Joe Phillips, woohoo, with inks by Bruce D. Patterson. Now the cover shows a promotional poster for Mister Miracle's 1990 world tour and it showcases appearances by booster gold blue beetle power girl fire ice guy Gardner, who's trapped in his little bubble martian manhunter and huntress and for the direct market version down in the upc box is actually a metamorphose face oh, so if you want to see this cover folks you can go out to our website again which is firewaterpodcast.com we'll have a gallery post there featuring some of the images from this issue not the whole thing just a few pages here and there i will include the cover so you can see it getting into the issue is plot and breakdowns by keith giffen script by len ween penciler is joe phillips Inker is Bruce D. Patterson. Letter is John Costanza. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor Kevin Dooley. And editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself is entitled, This Show Must Go On and On and On and On. <laughs> The issue opens around the massive cluster spaceship with Manga Khan and Elron. Now, we readers discover that the cluster is returning to Earth. Dun, dun, dun. Back in New York, Oberon is packing and leaving the JLI embassy. He's heading on a world tour of Mr. Miracle. The superheroine Fire grabs Oberon and surprises him with a full-on goodbye kiss, telling him to hurry back as he blushes. For the world tour, both Mr. Miracle and Oberon are reluctant to trust Funky Flashman's involvement. The tour is to promote the new Miracle Mister, which is a new cleaning gadget. Funky mentions that he just signed a massive deal that should net them millions. The tour is planned to kick off that night in Medicine Square Garden in New York City. Yes, I said that right. It's spelled medicine with an E instead of an A for Madison Square Garden. Not sure why, but it's consistently spelled that way throughout the issue. Uh, for the event, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Fire and Ice all plan to attend, wearing the hottest fashions in formal attire. Now, at the sold-out event in Medicine Square Garden, Mr. Miracle performs death-defying escapes to the crowd's delight. Meanwhile, the JLI monitors have detected the massive cluster spaceship entering the atmosphere on a direct course for Medicine Square Garden. Martian Manhunter, Guy Gardner, Huntress, Power Girl, and Metamorpho race across town to find the cluster ship hovering directly over Medicine Square Garden. Mr. Miracle, Oberon, and Funky Flashman are teleported aboard the cluster ship. MagaCon and Elron explain that Funky Flashman signed a contract with them. The cluster is delivering 500,000 units of the Miracle Misters at a ridiculously low price. Half the units are to be sold on Earth. For the other half, the cluster has planned a full intergalactic promotional tour to promote the the product on other planets. The JLI burst their way into the cluster ship. Megacon greets the JLI side by side with Mr. Miracle, at least it appears to be. Turns out that's a doppelganger robot who claims that everything's okay and Megacon is simply his business partner. The robot is convincing, and the situation de-escalates. Later, back on Earth, the JLI, along with Mr. Miracle's doppelganger robot, they find themselves taking possession of 250,000 units of Miracle Misters to be sold on Earth. They wonder, just where are they going to store all these boxes? Now, the cluster ship departs the Earth, with the JLI thinking everything's back to normal. But, on board the cluster ship are the real Mr. Miracle, Oberon, and Funky Flashman. Funky Flashman is frustrated because he didn't think he would get roped into this part of the intergalactic tour. Oberon is furious! with Funky Flashman, and Mr. Miracle is sad about the prospect of being away from his wife Barda for months, and that the robot is taking his place at home. Which also just happens to be where they're going to store those 250,000 boxes of Miracle Misters. 
At the end of the issue, it says, Next month, the 1990 Mr. Miracle Tour kicks off in Mr. Miracle number 13. Just in time for Scott and the Cluster crew to confront the lethal Lobo. While on the pages of Justice League America number 37, Mr. Miracle's robotic replacement makes his dubious, dramatic debut. Buy one, buy them both. Either way, we get paid. <laughs> uh, this was a great comic. It works perfectly as a Mr. Miracle issue and as a JLI issue. Now, for the best part, my conversation with the penciler for this issue. If you're unfamiliar with Joe Phillips, he is a painter, an illustrator, an animator, a designer, and a sculptor. His commercial work appears internationally in books, magazines, and on products going back to 1983, and he's based out of San Diego. Now, in the realm of mainstream comics, you might recognize his work from runs-on series such as Mr. Miracle, Timberwolf, Speed Racer, and Body Doubles, and in 1996 with Dark Horse, he created a new comic book character called The Heretic. Beyond those runs, he's also done a bunch of other comics, including work on characters such as Captain America, Wolverine, Green Lantern, Superboy, Silver Surfer, Doctor Who, and many, many more. Now, folks, there is a lot more to know about Joe Phillips, but I think I'll just let him speak for himself. Well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. I know this is going to mean a lot to the folks to have someone who actually drew a Justice League International-related comic book on the show. This is very exciting. I appreciate it. I enjoy doing the comic, so it's kind of nice to come back to it. What is over us? Gosh, what is that, 20-some-odd years? <laughs> uh, actually, 30, believe it or not. Okay, see? We could have had kids by now. <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> so, let me ask you, going back to kids and things like that, how did you first get interested in reading comics, and what were some of your favorites when you were a kid? Wow. Well, back in the day when I was a small child, no, uh, <laughs> I used to read just, you know, the funny papers, as they used to call them at the, at the time. So my earliest stuff that I was reading was like little Abner mm. uh, cartoons in the newspaper and Pogo was one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. Archie. I got into Richie Rich hot stuff and all that kind of, you know, silliness. And I really wasn't into superhero comics as much. My brother was really into The Flash and Green Arrow, Green Lantern. And so that's when I, I would read his comic books and then I started getting into my own and I start you know I start picking up the X-Men and went from there so it uh, initially it was sort of you know I was more into the funny books and then I started getting into the superhero stuff when you know the stories they went the full gambit because I think at the time that I picked up the DC comics they were really a little bit more gritty ish not not gritty in the same way that they kind of are today but they they just were more adult subjects and complex character relationships as opposed to just, you know, this week we're going to fight Captain Cole. Right. So that attracted me, especially the X-Men, because they actually seemed that they had a point of view. So what made you want to make that leap from reading the comics and enjoying them to drawing them? And how did you eventually break into the business? Well, I guess what it was, was I saw that there was an actual job for art. I mean, I always drew when I was a kid and I went to a performing arts school. So I was interested in theater and set design, costume design, things like that. And I would help block out uh, staging. I would work with the director and we, we would block out the, the, the staging for different scenes and I would do kind of a rough storyboard of kind of you know what we what we saw uh the action to be and that really got me into turning the written word into a visual mm -hmm. and i started out doing comic zines i don't know if you even know it absolutely yeah but how old were you during all this 16 okay all right 16 17 something like that and so we would come up with our own my brother and i would come up with my own uh comic characters we'd see star wars and then we'd create our characters doing star wars stuff and you know just having a lot a lot of fun creating, you know, acting out almost like role playing the characters' personalities and drawing mm -hmm. them, drawing them down on paper, stuff like that. So it, 
it was always something that I was doing. And so when I was looking at the comic books and it had like the information in, the, in it saying, you know, you can write a letter to the to the editor or whatever. And they, that's when I found out they had comic book conventions. And I went to a comic book convention for the first time and actually got to meet some of the artists that were working on the comics. Mm-hmm. And I was hooked. I was like, OK, all right. What do you do? How do you get this job? And they would give me advice, how to submit, what to draw, how I could improve my artwork and everything like that. So every time I would go to a different convention, I talked to whoever was there and just try to give them what they asked for. And that sort of like, I took a couple of years, but little bit by little bit, I really sort of came into my own and understood what they were asking for and how to draw a comic book. And I remember when I was working with the fanzine, they would like send me a story that somebody else would have written. And then I would just draw the story from there. And then they would be all super excited and that would get me super excited. And so just creating the comics for that was sort of like the groundwork for wanting to do comics professionally. Sure. It's amazing that you were self-taught. I mean, that's really impressive. So was there any particular artist that you either met in person or just enjoyed their work that influenced you in the beginning? Well, there were several. I met John Byrne. I'm John Byrne. Oh. I was like a huge John Byrne fan at wow. the time. Yeah. And, and they had like a Jim Shooter roast, which was weird. Like a bunch of artists <laughs> had come down. They were all going to roast roast Jim Shooter. And so he was there and Bob Layton was there. Oh, wow. And, and uh, John Romita Jr. was there and George Perez was there. And so I met them all and they all, you know, gave me little bits of advice and things like that. That's an and, amazing uh, amount of talent in one room. My gosh. Yeah, well, you know, this was the old days back when, you know, they traveled in packs. And it was kind of crazy, but nowadays you kind of like look back at all of that personality in one space, you don't realize how crazy it, it was. It's sort of trying to <laughs> fuse atoms. They just, you know, they want to repel from each other, but they're all, <laughs> but they're all like, you know, held together by the civility of the, com- of the comic book convention. And it was, it was really cool. And they would tell me something on Friday and I go home that night and draw and I come back on Saturday and show them what I did. And they were oh, like, wow. Oh, okay. So, so you're listening, you know, and that became part of it. Uh, I also met Craig Hamilton uh, around Ooh. that uh, time and he was doing Aquaman. I was just uh, going to say, please say Aquaman, please say Aquaman, please say Aquaman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was with Aquaman at the time. And so he was, you know, roughly around my age, a little bit, uh, you know, a little older, but, and he was from, from Macon, Georgia, and I was from Atlanta. At, and so we just hit it off and just became friends. And so when he moved to Atlanta, I would go over to his house and bug him all the time and watch him draw. Okay. And, uh, you know, just really get more and more into the comic industry, you know, underground kind of thing. Not so much that DC or anybody else knew of my stuff at the time, but, you know, I, I would see his scripts and I'd be drawing pages, you know, myself just to see, you know, just how to uh, break down and how to lay things out the way, you know, a professional would do it. And, you know, just sort of learning the materials and uh, how to use reference and all this kind of thing. So that was, you know, that, that was definitely super valuable. And I start meeting other young comic artists at the time because we were all sort of going to these different conventions. And that's where you know, I met Brian Stelfreeze and Carl Story. And, you know, we were just, you know, kids out of comic books. We all started working roughly uh, within four months of each other for a company called Southern Nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, they used to do um, the Southern Nights and a couple of other books. And I remember doing an issue uh, or two with them. And, and, you know, we just started doing different, you know, different comic books and whatnot but that was you know that was uh the lead-in 
I remember that book. I, I worked in a comic shop throughout the '90s, and I remember we were selling oh, that no. book at the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> so how'd you get the assignment drawing uh, the monthly Mister Miracle series? Well, I had previously been drawing Speed Racer for I think it was Now Comics, mm-hmm. and uh, that ended. And uh, I started um, looking for work, and I did like an issue of Interview with a Vampire, but the company who was putting it out, they just didn't have enough money to pay on time, and I had bills to pay. So I was like, <laughs> right, and, and, you know, you know. I can do it and wait for a check, but I'm like, mm. so I did some submissions. And one of the things that I remember, one of the artists, he said, what happens when the packages come in, if you just like send samples to, you know, the art department or editor or whatever, you know, they won't get it. I mean, or they'll get it, but they won't necessarily open it and, and, and check it out. So you basically, you're spending a lot of time. You have to send individual packages to each of the editors that you're trying to communicate with because they each have their own set of artists that they like to work with. Mm. And so they don't, so you may have one, you know, one editor may see your stuff and may not have any work for you, but may hold on to your pages, you know, for months before he has need of you, whereas somebody else could possibly need something. And so uh, what I did is I put together, you know, several packages at one time. And, and he was saying, you know, you don't need to have more than five pages, any more than five pages. People are going to, you know, they're not going to pay attention to it. They can tell, you know, if you know how to tell a story uh, as short as you possibly can and get your point across. And I said, okay, that's good. And they also wanted the pages, instead of, you know, sending like little eight and a half by 11 pages, which previously I had done, you know, Xerox copies of it and stuff like that. But they said, you know, send 11 by 17, you know, big pages, put them in a FedEx because they get to the mailroom and the mailroom opens up all the FedEx boxes and puts the pages on each of the editor's little cubby so it makes it easier for them to to carry it from you know office to office mm-hmm. instead of having all these big boxes but if it's like in a, a manila envelope they'll just stick the whole envelope in there and the person may or may not open it but ah. since the editors since the editors are expecting pages from their artists uh when they see loose pages they just instinctively pick them up and start looking through them that's really clever very clever. yeah i was like oh you know I, like i said i was really trying to get the i, I, I wanted to download i wanted to know how, <laughs> how do you do this you know? right and because, you know, the way schools teach you, uh, you know, you do a resume and you, you know, you go in for an interview and bolt, none of that happened. Not, you know, none of that's true, uh, in, right. you know, that, that type of thing. And so sent it in and I sent stuff in on a, on a Wednesday and Thursday I got a call from Andy Helfer's office and I didn't believe it. You know, <laughs> I thought it was, no, I don't, no, I thought it was one of my friends, you know, being a dick. Right. And that, you know, cause you know, that's the kind of friends I have. Right. Uh, <laughs> And uh, they knew I was sending stuff out and whatnot, but I was like, yeah, well, you know, what, you know, what are you going to do? And so I was kind of glib and kind of, you know, snarky, like, yeah, sure, whatever. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and uh, he's like, no, no, it's really, it's just really Andy Helfer. I'm going like, okay, sure, Andy Helfer. You know, I'd be happy to draw Mr. Miracle. And he says, okay, well, we got your information here and I'm going to have uh, my editor call you back tomorrow and, you know, set everything up. And I said, okay. So I was kind of like, do do And then so Friday comes up and Kevin Dooley, which was his assistant at the time he right. called me up and says yeah we got this story you know i want you to uh, do this issue and here are all the reference and blah 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 and he sent it to me and he sent me a box of you know of, of the previous comics and the um paper to draw it on and i was like going nuts i was like ah 
<laughs> this just so, got real. It got real. And I was like, I was like, I was on cloud nine. I'm like, I was screaming and whatnot. But uh, after I calmed down, man, I drew those pages so fast. It's not even funny. I, I don't know how long it took me to do it, but it was shorter than I've ever done anything else because, of, you know, I, I couldn't sleep. Right, right. You know, I, I just was drawing. I was just drawing. And I, so the, the following week, I must have sent in about 10 pages. And they were like, okay, these are great, but you got to calm down. You got to <laughs> I was going to say, it's probably the opposite. Be careful with uh, the comic company. If they know you can crank out 10 pages in a week, you're, you're going to be doing everything. Well, you know, but you know, but there were some issues. You know, I had some fake perspective in there and things like that, you know, because you, you don't know exactly what you And having an editor really helps sort of ground you in what, you know, what to do and what not to do. That's great. So I was going to ask about that, you know, with, with editors and writers and all that. You, you you worked with quite a few of them on this book, on Mr. Miracle. You, you, know, you started with yeah. J.M.D. Mateus and Len Wein, and then you got Doug. I can never say his name. Do you, is it Doug Monk? I don't. Mitch. Oh, okay. Doug Mitch. Thank you. And then on the JLI special, you work with Keith Giffen. So, what was the relationship with those authors? Did did they all work the same? Was it like Marvel style yeah, or full well, script? They were all different. Um, okay. But but they were different for different reasons because once uh, Lynn took over the book, uh, Lynn and I came into the office together, so we actually got to meet face to face. Oh, cool. And go out, you know, you know, hang out for dinner and stuff like that, and chat. And we talked about what we liked and you know, what we didn't like and blah, 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 and where we're going to go. And you know, so that came into more of a, an outline of, of where the stories were going to go and tone that we were trying to create more than anything else. And, but whereas like with Keith Giffen, you know, he knew exactly what every, every page was. He, you know, he laid it out, you know, cause at the time I think he was doing a lot of <laughs> nine panel grids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, his move uh, at that time frame. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and the way he writes is he, is, is he literally just, you know, draws draws pictures, mm-hmm. and then he comes back in and he puts dialogue over the pictures. Okay. And so, so when I get a script from him, I just can look at it and pretty much draw exactly what he did. And I mean, not exactly, because, you know, sometimes his layouts are kind of stagnant, mm-hmm. and he's okay with, you you know, you going off of that, but he's just saying, this is the bare minimum is what you need to have in here. This is where the dialogue's going to go. Make, you know, don't draw anything that's going to be covered up, because this is where they're going to have that conversation. Gotcha. So for the other ones, like the, that weren't done in breakdowns, did did you feel like you had a lot of room to interpret the scenes, or was this were the scripts pretty tight? Or no, there was a lot of room to break down scenes. In fact, that was one of the things that we we had discussed when we were working on the book. Like you know, how much information do you need? And and I was saying that I I really like you know, cause like some writers they write they write like writers, and and what I mean by that is they try to excite you, you know, and not tell you all the details up front. And as an artist, I need all the details up front. Don't tell me that there's a character you know cloaked in a shadow okay now i don't know what that means that means there's a guy in a shadow now i don't know if it's if it's batman i don't know <laughs> if it, you know i don't know if it's wonder Woman. i don't know who who's in the shadow so i so i may make a big cloaked figure in the shadow and you say oh and it's you know and it's wonder woman it's like no it's not <laughs> you know, let me know as the artist i need to know who's in the shadow mm-hmm. you know you know don't try to surprise me aha because then now i gotta go back and i've got to change it i've got to go and erase some things and you go like oh, okay that's sure. what I, yeah so that's what I need to know beforehand and that way and also like if there's a particular character that gets introduced that we haven't had a look for that gives me a chance to design them up or you know make any kind of alterations or you know what have you with the characters and so that was kind of interesting you know learning the difference between the writers and stuff like that and having an editor uh, as a go between definitely helps. Well, taking the other side of the house, the art side for a second, from from the writers, you know, uh, as a fellow artist, you, you had a chance here to work on Mr. 
Mr. Miracle, who's kind of a, a trademark stamp character, Jack Kirby's. Did, did you feel like Kirby's work sort of influenced you on this, or did you look back to Kirby's, or did you just want to go in your own direction? Did you have a philosophy there? Wow, that's a good question. No, I think, I mean, definitely I got the Kirby issues, and I looked at what he was doing, and what I liked about what he was doing was this, you know, the, the, the crazy geometric shapes and all of mm-hmm. the costumes and sort of the presence of the character. So, like, you know, when Big Barter was in the, the picture, you know, she took up a, a good chunk of the the, the, the page. She mm-hmm. was a special effect kind of a thing. And so I wanted to sort of keep that visual going on, even though <laughs> at the time, I think Mr. Miracle, he was doing, he was like trying to, you know, live a normal life and stay at home kind of a thing, which was weird. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, that was the idea. At, and, and But I was going to like, you know, well, you've got a seven foot tall wife and she's trying to, you know, I think she wound up joining a, a ladies wrestling team or something like that. And, you know, there, there's just so many little bits that I can always sort of go back to um, the way Kirby would just have that particular visual language and, and try to put a little bit in that. But at the same time, it was a, it was, you know, the, the 90s and there was a sort of look that was out. And so I wanted to keep everything looking modern mm-hmm. um, as I would give Bart a different hairstyles or I would try to dress the characters in clothes of the time and things like that. I got to say, uh, reading because I've been rereading through these, these issues, you know, Scott Free, when he was out of costume, was always drawn with the most modern fashions. I mean, very cool, very <laughs> hip, very 1980s designs, which nowadays are sort of hilarious to us. But, you know, I remember those days, so I can look at it and go, dude, that is spot on. That is exactly what, like, a guy who was on the edge of his game would be wearing. So props to you, sir. Props to you. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but, you know, that was a funny thing. Is that, so, but, like, now it's, like, super dated. And you're like, right. oh, my God, look at them parachute pants. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and all the geometric sh- uh, designs, all the multicolors, you know, it looks like he set up, stepped off the set of Miami Vice, oh, which is know, right? which is perfect, though. I mean, that's exactly oh. what that era was. So yeah. a, a couple other challenges that would have came with this book were like the humor. You know, there's a lot of humor in the Mr. Miracle book and the JLI book that you covered here. And then, you know, uh, Scott's a, he's, he's a contortionist. He's an escape artist. So did the humor or like his own anatomy for being a contortionist, did any of that uh, give you challenges or did you approach him differently because of those things? No, I don't think so. I think I think the thing that that sort of got me with Scott was that you know he was trying to have something that didn't really exist, mm-hmm. and so he you know he was always going to be out of sorts. And so when you, like who he was when he was just regular Scott Free, and who he was as, as Mister Miracle, because he wasn't quite a superhero, but he was a superhero, but he was a contortionist, and then he would fall for you know Funky Flashman's stupid uh, <laughs> you know schemes and ideas, and then and then Granny Goodness and her group they were always you know somewhere in the background so there was very few times where he got to sort of do things the way he wanted to and mm-hmm. I think that the tension for the comic book was that you know, you know his name's Scott Free but he's not you know he's not Scott Free right yeah well you mentioned Granny and, and things like Granny Goodness so did you have any favorite villains to draw when you're on the book or were there any that you wanted to draw but never uh, got a chance to there were some crazy villains I forget the guy who was he was a head right that was right before this uh, special yeah absolutely yeah yeah it was a head in a box that was he was crazy and i enjoyed doing the female furies when they got to be in the book for mm-hmm. a little bit but they were fun and oh gosh i remember the first issue i think it had 
like the Dr. Ivo and yes. uh, other robots and stuff. Yeah, that thing was crazy. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. they had uh, Blue Beetle and, and Booster Gold running around being silly. And so, yeah, no, it, it definitely had its moments. So you had a chance to draw some of the GLI folks right out of the gate there. So let's, let's dig into this because one of the big things we do with the show is we go issue by issue. And right now we are on Justice League International Special Number 1 featuring Mr. Miracle drawn by you. So when you read this comic, it is essentially like Mr. Miracle number 12 and one half is kind of what it is, really. I mean, it fits right between issues 12 and 13. And I was wondering if you had any idea how this issue came about, being that it was just League special, even though it really reads like it's part of the, I mean, it's the Mr. Miracle creative team. It takes place between the two. They actually skipped a month between issue 12 and 13. And I didn't know, uh, was it planned originally as a Mr. Miracle issue? Was it always intended to be a Justice League issue? Any idea how this came about? Yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> As I put you on the spot. Yeah, well, no, it's just peeling back the veil of 30 years. Let's see. Well, they were going to do something with the Justice League. They wanted, you know, to have Mr. Miracle have a, you know, have an issue. Mm-hmm. But they also wanted to switch out the plot of the, the, the regular series. Whereas, you know, before he was on Earth doing his thing, and then they wanted to switch it out so that he was in space. Mm-hmm. So then it was like the, the whole issue with they were at the Madison Square Garden and he right. was going to have a show and all of that kind of stuff. So it definitely was planned, but at the same time, it was like a good opportunity to sort of give a reason to switch up the regular issues. And I think, and I could be wrong in this because no one, yeah, no one mentioned it, but I think this is where sales were kind of being a little iffy. Mm. So that, uh, because of just the the, the, the regular uh, living at home plot line was kind of getting thin. Gotcha. And you know they wanted more superhero and crazy stuff happening in there to kind of pump it back up. And so having Justice League tie and would bring that audience back into Mr. Miracle so he would be more relevant in connection with everything else. So I think that definitely was like a little kickstart. Well, it definitely worked on me. Let me tell you, because I, I had not been buying the Mr. Miracle book at that point. Uh, I, I'd probably flipped through an issue or two, but I wasn't a follower of it. But I read this Mr. Miracle special because it had Justice League splattered across the top. And sure enough, uh, I picked up the next issue of Mr. Miracle and I stayed with the book. In fact, oh, cool. in fact, it would be issue probably 13 and 14 where he was dealing with Lobo. That's the first time I really, like, your artwork really, I noticed it, I guess is the best way to say. And I was just, like, totally blown away by the action scenes in space. And I, j- I always felt like your art was so slick and it just always stayed with me. And so I, I'm, I'm so glad they did this special. Otherwise, I never would have found those issues. It, if they say sales gimmicks work, sales gimmicks work. They do. I'm living proof. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so now I am going to force you to uh, dig back in your memory here 30 years ago. I, I personally can't even remember what I had for breakfast, so forgive me here. But I'm uh, going to ask about this particular special. So the cover, uh, it's absolutely awesome. It's a great poster sort of image of Mr. Miracle bursting out of that. Any thoughts on the layout and on, on how you approach that? And I, and I got to say, I love the little uh, UPC box as being Metamorpho's face. That is freaking genius. That is awesome. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, no, I think when the idea of it came out was there were going to be like just like little stars and the characters would sort of be popping out of these stars mm. on, the, uh, on the cover. And I sort of made them into bullet points and then putting uh, Guy Gardner, you know, trapped inside of his. <laughs> was fun. It's adorable. And, and then, but we didn't have any space for uh, a Morpho, but we had to leave a box for the, um, the UPC code. And so I figured that box is 
got it was not going to be there. So that little drawing was just there to be funny for my editor. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it uh, it got printed up. <laughs> well, it's yeah. genius. It's absolutely genius. It works so perfectly given his shape changing power. So it's just genius. Love it. So I gotta ask you, man. So all right, they, like I said, there was a month in between. So it went issue twelve of Mister Miracle. Then they had a month off for the special, and then issue thirteen. Mm. Now normally you're drawing twenty two pages in a month. This thing is thirty seven freaking pages, man. How did you do that in a month? You know, I was young. <laughs> I, I, I needed the work. <laughs> um, yeah, I, that was it. I mean, I was really, I was so into comics and the idea of drawing. So, you know, sitting at uh, my desk drawing all day did not seem like a chore at all. You know, all my friends were comic geeks. So, you know, they'd come over and be super sweet to me. And like, like you know, they'd be like, oh, that's so cool. And I'd be like, hey, that is so cool. And I'd sit there and I'd, you know, it was like the perfect storm of, of a project and timing. And I think it was just, it was just one of those, one of those moments where you don't realize how much work it is until after the fact. But, but some of it, like I say, some of it was pre-laid out. And okay. so that makes it a lot easier to sort of not have to think about it. That's true. Giffen was involved in this one. So yeah. So maybe there were some breakdowns, I guess. Yeah. So the ones that there were breakdowns on and then the other ones, you know, you finally get a, a hang of it. Like the first three issues, I, I definitely think were my most rough issues, just trying to figure out what was going on and how to draw and make things look like look like something. And then all of a sudden, you know, it starts to make sense. And you start saying, oh, this is what I'm doing. And this is what I'm doing wrong. And I, I think w- when that hit, that was right when we were really starting to get in our groove of changing the stories around. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. I mean, I, I think I had a weird inker at that time I wasn't super thrilled with, but he was a super nice guy. And I and I remember a conversation with my editor and I did not agree with them. But at the same time, you know, I, I had some other inker friends like John Dell at the time uh, was a good friend of mine from New Orleans. And I wanted him to ink me. But they had this other guy. And, and one of the things that they, they would do is they would take a, a not, not a strong inker and put him on a strong penciler mm-hmm. to sort of you know, average it up or, or to teach the, you know, the anchor to be stronger and, and, and stuff like that. And I, and I was just like, yeah, but it's just, it's just killing my lines. Gotcha. <laughs> oh yeah. I get what you're saying. Lines. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm not in any position to do anything. I just, I just do the work and right, right. I figure if I'm on time and, you know, making sure that I can have, you know, more leeway on future projects and that mindset. But yeah, it, it really was looking back at it. That was a lot of pages done in a very short period of time. I, I think at the time I was averaging about three pages a day. Oof, man. Yeah, I know. You were a set. machine. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I, because to talk about Kirby, because I remember uh, there was an interview I had read and Kirby, I think he was doing five pages a day on <sighs> something because like, he was, because he was working on like three different books. Right. And so he'd do two pages on this and a page page on that and two pages on this other thing. So you were just trying to keep up with the legend of the fourth world there then, huh? Well, I don't know if I was trying to keep up with the legend, but I thought that's what you had to do because it's not like that you go into an office and then they're, they're there and they can teach you or, or tell you how to do your job. You, you're an independent contractor for the most part and uh, you just sort of do what they uh, what, what the assignment is and you have a, a page a day is what they ask, but a friend of mine always said the time is money so the idea of if they pay you X dollars for one page and you get double X dollars for two pages. Well, you get triple X dollars for three pages. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> 
<laughs> comes down to math and, and the and the wallet, right? You know, yeah, so that you know, so that's part of it. And I think sometimes, you know, when you when you're working at that pace, you start learning where to put the emphasis at. Mm. You know, because that was also when I learned how to draw comics. In the sense of a friend of mine was saying, what you do is you do thumbnails, you do small drawings that are roughly eight and a half by eleven size, and so you lay out your story, and then you blow it up on the copier, and then you light box the pages, and so you can go a lot faster. And that's and that way you don't have that same stop and start feel that you get from when you're doing page by page by page, mm-hmm. because now you can kind of go in and you know where everything is. And so like if, if one day you say, I'm really into doing backgrounds, so you can do three or four pages of backgrounds, and then the next day you can come in and do three or four pages of figures, and then you've got six pages done in a shorter period of time than if you had stopped and started the whole process. So it was just being more efficient, and I think more than anything else, that that was it. And you don't make those same uh, mistakes of drawing something that's going to be covered up with dialogue anyway. So if you draw them small and can look at the whole pages, and you can lay the whole book out and look at the whole book before you even start drawing anything and you say, oh, okay, this looks terrible over here. Oh, you know what? I could do this better. You can make those decisions well before you commit to drawing the page for real. And that really helped out a lot. That is really interesting. I hadn't thought about sort of that production style of focusing on one area versus the other. That makes perfect sense. That was the thing that I didn't know. It's like, they don't teach you that. You mm-hmm. know, that, that's something that you, you know, you pick up from other comic book artists and they kind of give you their little secrets of, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. So it's always good to sort of network as opposed to sort of working in your own bubble, in your own head. Right, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a couple of uber nerdy questions here about the book. Sorry, forgive me. No, no, go ahead. There's a couple of drawn panels that just crack me up. One of them uh, is on page seven, not that that necessarily matters, but it's it's Funky Flashman. He's hanging out with Scott and they're talking. And Funky Flashman is eating caviar and he's trying to get Scott to sit down and eat it with him. But once, as a, as a reader, if you really <laughs> notice, he's eating caviar on top of an Oreo, which oh, is yeah. which is so perfect <laughs> for this book. Was that your idea or was that in the script? Uh, I don't remember. I, I, I wish I could tell you that, you know, it, it could have been in the script. I think it, yeah, I think it was in the script. I was going to say, we can know, just give it to you. It's been 30 years. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was all my genius. It was, all, oh my God, I'm looking at this page now and boy, talking about, talking about some 90s. Man, that shirt that Scott's wearing. That's one of the shirts Ooh. I was talking about with the geometric Ooh. shapes. <laughs> Oh, and he's got the hair. He's got the little yes. tassel, you know, the tassel hair. And and Barta, she's got her, her 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 sweater with all this. Oh my God! Well, in the high in the high pants with the skinny belt. Oh yeah. Yeah, the high oh, pants yeah. with the skinny belt. Wow! You nailed it, man. I mean, it is it wow. is a per. Well, go to the next page because actually I had to talk to you about this too. So you've got Beetle and Booster in like the slickest like 1990s. Like I'm expecting Chandler Bing to be wearing this tuxedo thing here. <laughs> Where is this? Where is this coming from, man? I love it. Oh, Do you wear this to prom or something, dude? Okay, you know that. You know that's the look. You know, <laughs> you know that's uh, you know that's some Corey Haynes. <laughs> Uh, Hell yeah, it is. You know, that's some Tiger Beat realness going on. I have no idea. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's what it is. It's like, you know, I was looking at, you know, fashion magazines and, mm-hmm. and, and, and what people were, you know, so that was, you know, they say they're going to be in tuxedos. And I'm thinking that these guys are cool, right? You know, they're not going to be in old man tuxedos. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is what celebrity hound, you know, people that crave the limelight. This is exactly what they would wear in that era. So it's perfect. <laughs> oh, but it is such a time capsule. It is such a time capsule. I love it. I oh, absolutely adore it. So man, well, there is so much fun stuff in here. Like in so many different JLIers, you get some Just League Europe, you get some Just League America folks. Did you have a favorite JLIer that you enjoyed? I mean, okay, we got to exclude Scott and Barta because that's not fair. But did you have a favorite JLIer you got to draw in this special? Well, I wanted to draw Batman, but of course I couldn't. <laughs> but uh, uh, Guy Gardner was always fun to draw. Okay. Martian Manhunter was fun to draw. All right. Yeah, I know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> good Lord, looking back at some of these, <laughs> and these pages are insane. <sighs> so, all right, we, we do something on the show here that we call Quahaha Award where we nominate what we think is the funniest moment in every issue. So I'm going to put it on you, sir, as the artist. What do you feel like is the funniest moment to you in this issue? Ooh, that's a good one. The funniest moment, let me think. Oh, you know what? It's probably Scott's shirt, to be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, looking, looking back at it now, right. Scott's shirt, that, that, man, that thing is awesome. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, I, I guess it's that or, you know, Booster and Beetle do, doing the bump, you know? <laughs> the, the butt bump? Yes, they do. <laughs> the, yeah, the, yeah, the butt bump. Like, what's, what was that all about? <laughs> all right, folks. Well, then we are going to award the coveted Bwahaha Award to Scott's glorious shirt and Beetle and Booster doing the butt bump. So congratulations, gentlemen. You've won the Bwahaha <laughs> Award. It is as tangible <laughs> as the laughter we give you. <laughs> Very cool. I think the um, close contender would have to de- definitely be, you know, fun eating uh, caviar on Oreos. Right. (laughs) Well, do you have any other memories of working on the special? Anything else that jumps out on you before we move on to your more recent career? Well, you know, I was super happy to do this particular book just because at the time, like JLA was was really big and everybody was look, you know looking at it. So it was, I, I felt more like I would have eyes on me, kind of a thing. So I, you know, I, I wanted to spend a little time and make the characters pop. Mm-hmm. And w- looking back at it and seeing like the scene where uh, Fire and Oberon are you know walking down the street and she's got on the the baggy torn jeans, right, right, you know, right, the jacket and the, with the buttons on all over it and and just the big puffed up hair and oh my god and he's and Oberon's wearing the Cosby sweater yes he is he stole it from Theo (laughs) I'm looking at this I'm going like what 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 you know and the guy's got you know there's one guy and he's he's got the big boom box you know it's just like okay that you know there was a lot going on in this issue you're cracking jokes about it but man you had your finger on the pulse of 1990 you really did so uh, you know but which is funny because it's like you think about things now and you think okay well you know how is this going to look in 10 years and i didn't think any of that i did not think of any of that i was just like okay this is i'm gonna have some fun <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be relevant you know? <laughs> well you can only live for today you can't you can't project tomorrow i mean goodness 2020 has been proof of that so uh, uh yeah oh yeah live for the moment sir live for the moment 
Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, you know what? And there is a little nugget. I think it's on page uh, on page 13. Okay. When, when, when Booster and Beetle and Fire and Ives are in the audience, mm-hmm. and, and the seats in front of them is Lynn, myself, and Andy Elf. No way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. So are, are you the one without facial hair? Yeah, I'm, uh, no facial hair. I'm, I'm looking grumpy. <laughs> Uh, oh, Andy, when he had, oh, he had that big puffy hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and there's Lynn, you know, with the glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, that's fantastic. God. I never noticed that. That's awesome. You know, that's a true. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in the same panel as those awesome tuxedos the guys are wearing and those awesome uh, dresses the girls are wearing. Oh, uh, that's crazy. Uh, <laughs> wow, just looking back at the past, I tell you. Yeah. 30 years ago. Wow. Well, it's 30 years old, but it's still a great comic. I've read it a few times now in preparation for this episode, and I still genuinely laughed out loud at a bunch of the script moments. I've been wowed by the art. It's got me to go back and reread some more of the Mr. Miracles, and uh, it's it's wonderfully great comics. And uh, you know, sadly, this particular special, it, you got to find it yourself in comic shops nowadays because they haven't made this digital. You know, the rest of the Mr. Miracle series... Is- yeah. Hopefully they'll start doing some of these. I was talking to someone saying that they were putting uh, some omnibuses together and yep. they were going to be starting putting some of these older pieces together. So we'll see. I don't know. The weird thing is this one's sort of falling between the cracks because they've done most of the Justice League issues. There's a few that they're not doing uh, for various reasons, but uh, the Mr. Miracle series is completely available digitally. So this one just seems to have sort of, like we said, fallen through, but maybe they'll pick it up for an omnibus. I hope they do. Well, somebody needs to be sending me a, a royalty check for the Mr. Miracles. There you go. Yeah, well, it's, it's out there in Comicsology and DC Universe, so you need to be writing them a letter, sir. <laughs> Now, let's move past uh, Mr. Miracle and JLI. I don't want to because I love those eras, but let's go forward. In the late 1990s, you successfully transitioned from superhero comics to commercial art, and including a, a lot of different merchandise and calendars. Um, you really focused a lot on, on gay theme publications. I mean, that was a, a major career shift. What led you down that path to the career shift? And um, was it scary to leave one industry behind and start over? Were you planning to work in both fields? Did you have any backlash or anything like that? Um, yes, to all of those things. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no. Well, you know, what, what it was is, you know, I'd been doing comics, you know, since I was in my teens. And so I was just kind of feeling burnt out. You know, I remember I just did JL8 for DC and then they wanted me to do some Superman comics. And I just was not feeling it. I couldn't make Superman work mm. for me. I couldn't figure him out. And so my pages didn't look that good. And I was, uh, you know, not the speediest of artists and or or, or anything so you know after that was over i you know literally kind of had like a an artistic breakdown and i just really couldn't do anything and hmm. so for about, for about three months i didn't draw anything and then i got a, a call from an editor for a, a xy magazine and it was like a, a gay youth magazine and they mm-hmm. did sort of like a, it's like t- tiger beat team beat that kind of thing whatever. okay and one of the editors he had saw my superboy issue and one of the characters in the background of the superboy issue he had a XY t-shirt on. He said, was that, did you do that? I said, yeah, I did that. And then we talked and we said, would I be interested in doing an illustration for them? I said, we could do a comic book or something like that, like a couple of comic pages. And so I started creating the Joe Boy comic strip for their uh, publication. And then 
people started uh, really identifying with it because it, there was nothing sort of out there like it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems that did, you know in the in the community is there's always an erotic overtone to everything, and so they wanted something that people could share with their parents. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, people that could read a story and enjoy it. That's not just sex. And so, and I remember when I was a kid, I really loved the old covers uh, that Norman Rockwell and Jason Linda had done. And that was my inspiration. I said, well, you know, I want to do that sort of slice of life, the regular everyday things, these gay characters. And so I just started creating these images. And then there's a company who uh, wanted to do calendars. And I started doing calendars with them. And then I started another company uh, with a couple of buddies of mine. And we created T-shirts and refrigerator magnets. And then we eventually did a, a national magazine. And it started to turn into something because now there was a lot more people who could have these gay positive characters that were fun and, and cute and everything like that. But, that you know, it wasn't always about sex and people could have conversations. And I got lots of letters from like parents that were very uh, happy that, you know, they didn't feel scared for their kids and things like that. And, you know, so it was it, it definitely emotionally was even more rewarding in a way than the work in comics, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because like a lot of times in comics, you, you know, besides the fun, the fun comic books, you get some comic books that are a lot of very violent. Yeah. Beating, be, be, you know, I solve my problems by beating people up. You know, it's like, you, know, <laughs> you know, you're a billionaire, right? You could like, <laughs> you could like take, you could take your money and you could put it into your city and you could really make a, a difference in these people's lives. No, no, I'm going to dress up at night and I'm going to go beat people up. <laughs> so, all right, Batman, that's what you're going to go do. Parent okay. issues, man. Parent issues. <laughs> I know, right? You know, helping poor people is not is not the same thing as beating people up. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm glad you talk about that because I, I worked in a comic shop, as I mentioned, in the 90s. And we had the quote-unquote adult box, right? And it's basically what you just described. It was all straight sex stuff. And there wasn't anything out there, as you said, gay positive. And seeing the work you've done, I mean, really the words that come to mind when I look at some of your work is, is fun and joy. I mean, they're really full of positivity. And and again, jo- I, I love the word joy. It, it's a word I like to use and I like to focus on in my life. And it, that really fits this work. And I, I love that you put that into the art you generated for this. So did you find it was incredibly successful? Did you struggle? And you mentioned, was there backlash? From- no, I mean, well, there were, you know, it's really weird. There, I mean, there is some backlash, but it's not as overt as that I would imagine. Mm-hmm. It's just some people, you know, are leery, you know, or uncomfortable and, and, and they don't really, they don't like the fact that they're uncomfortable, but they're still uncomfortable. Hmm. You know? Okay. That's kind of something that I picked up from, from, from different people in the industry. And then there's other people that they, you know, embrace me just as, as they always have and have always been, you know, friends and uh, supportive and, and things like that. So I think by not having any kind of shame or fear of, of the work, like you can't do anything honestly if you're ashamed or afraid of it, mm-hmm. you know. And so other people are going to pick up on that fear and shame. They're going to find they're going to be uncomfortable. And, and if they're going to be uncomfortable, it should be uncomfortable for their own reasons, not for my reasons. It should be un- they should be uncomfortable because they have questions that they have to answer themselves where I am OK with who I am and who and, and what I do, because if you know, if I can do it and, and feel good about 
about it, then I think people see that in the artwork and in the stories, and then they are a lot more able to, 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 to share that, and then they tell me their stories, and I know that, you know, what I'm working on is something that resonates with them, and it's not just product, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure. Do, do you ever feel sort of vulnerable putting, because I'm, I'm I'm making some assumptions oh, sure, here, yes. so forgive me. I mean, given your, your background, do you feel like you're putting more of yourself into this work versus a superhero thing, like something you more can relate to? Does it make you more, again, the word vulnerable is what comes to mind. Yeah, it, it does, but at the same time, it, it's something that no one else can take away from me. Mm-hmm. You, know, we're, you know, like I did my own comic book. I did The Heretic for right. Dark Horse, and uh, it was a lot of fun and, and stuff like that, but I never got the response from that character as I get from the, the Joe Boy stuff, right. you know? And it's just a matter of, if you can get the type of emotional response from something like, um, you know, do, you know, doing your superhero comic books, then that's where you need to be. But if you need to, you know, write space operas or you need to write, you know, horror stories. I mean, like, you know, you can look at a person like uh, Mike Mignola, who, you know, he was doing all kinds of stuff for DC and Marvel. And, and until he came up with Hellboy, where he had his own story mm-hmm. to tell, did he really sort of come into his own? And I think that's the the case of, of, of a lot of artists, writers that work within the industry. I mean, even like Wendy Penny, who right. does ElfQuest, you know, she's done other stuff outside of ElfQuest, but ElfQuest is, you know, the one that, that brings her joy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the kind of stories that we need to have more of out there. And, you know, over time, it you know, it builds an audience, you know, and it may not sell as much as Superman when it first comes out, but, you know, but if you work on Superman, you may get some royalties or you may not. It may be a good story. It may not. You don't know. As a creator, you don't own Superman. He's already been created and he's already been owned. So, you know, you're just another hand in the mix. Right. And and then you create something of, of your own. And it's very scary because you don't know if people are going to like it or if you're going to be wasting your time or whatever. But, you know, you do it because you actually have something to say. At least I hope um, you have something to say. But, but there's a lot of guys... I used to meet when I was uh, doing the con circuit and they were like these older comic book guys like uh, Marty Nodell. Mm. You know, they'd be at the convention and they'd be sitting there and a lot of people wouldn't even come by and talk to them. And they were just sort of signing old golden age books and talking to a few old timers. But a lot of the new kids just didn't get it. Mm. And I would sit there and I'd listen to them and listen to the stories and see what's going on. And like, you know, like, are they still creating? Are they still making stuff? Are they still doing new things? And it's like, no. And I'm like, wow. Like, it's in my mind. I'm like, you know, you always got to be moving forward. You always got to find something that's yours because the industry, they'll pay you a little bit and, you know, let you go. But, you know, who still makes creator own royalties off of some of these characters and some of the companies that own them now, they won't even allow you to create characters for them because they don't want to share the royalties with you. Right. Going the creator own route and going into commercial art, I mean, it really sounds like it was a great move for you and it sounds like it's been very successful. Uh, it has had its ups and downs there. Are, I mean, uh, I can't say that it hasn't, but I w- I've had a couple of really amazing, fun things that come out. I, I did a, uh, a national campaign for uh, Bud Light, which was oh, really wow. a, it was a lot of fun yeah that like the joe boys enjoying a bud light oh that's <laughs> you know? awesome so, yeah so i'm like so i was like okay it, you know it's, it's definitely had its moments I, yeah i got to illustrate the joy of gay sex they had they, you know when the random house okay you know, they have the books you know, the joy of sex the right joy oh yeah of, oh yeah yeah, yeah. joy of cooking and anyway so they, they have one the joy of sex and so the writers they did a second edition and they sought me out to to, to work on that so i was like wow that's that's really cool that's 
Random House Money. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Cha-ching. <laughs> I know. Cha-ching. You know, and then I, I got into teaching ourselves animation, and so we did some cartoons and music videos. I was going to say, I've seen some um, of the music videos. Cool stuff. Yeah. So it, it's definitely been kind of like a fun ride, but it's like as I get older, I start thinking like, well, what is the project that I want to work on now? Or what do I have to say now that's different? And, I, and that's where sort of the new Joe universe is starting to come into focus where I'm sort of taking the old footsteps of the, of the comic career because you, cause you learn a lot doing sequential artwork and, and, it's, and so that's always been a, a passion of mine so hopefully the new comic that I'm working on now will sort of cross the two worlds and we'll see what happens <laughs> Well, all right, time for the plug here, man. What are we talking about? Is this uh, So I Married a Superhero? Yeah, So I Married a Superhero. Yeah, the, the first of the Joeverse books, and it takes all the humor and stuff that I that, that I enjoy, the old TV shows that I uh, used to watch and my friends and everything like that, and, I, and I'm sort of using that as my, uh, my power cell and then just creating characters uh, based on that. So, you know, I Married a Superhero is kind of my take on, like, Bewitched, where, <laughs> you know. You know, I love so, it. So the regular guy marries a guy who happens to be a superhero, and then you find out that not only is he a superhero, but nearly everybody in his family are superheroes, and it's sort of like the clash between regular folks and the superhero world and, and whatnot. And they're they're parodies based off of traditional comic tropes, mm-hmm. um, but sort of mixed up to be a little different. So you know, you you have the mother-in-law, and if her name's not Esmeralda, just forget it, man. No, no. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> Esmeralda. Uh, I want to put Esmeralda in, the, in it so bad. But, or, you know. or Mrs. Kravitz, the next door neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love you. You took me on a bewitched tangent. I, I, I no, got... no, but that, yeah, no. I'm serious because you know, like I was looking at like whatever Darren was up to was so boring. <laughs> and uh, you always wanted uh, Samantha's relatives to show up and sure. just cause some trouble. Yeah, and, exactly. And so that's kind of like you know, I married a hero is about. So and we find out that the husband is he's a scientist and uh, and he makes all kinds of crazy inventions and whatnot. But he finds out that the company he works for is actually the company he's making devices. Is for the uh, the supervillain. Oh <laughs> gosh! <laughs> yeah, so he doesn't know he doesn't know that at the time, and you know, so he's like, "Yeah, I've just created a new particle splitter." And next thing you know, the villain's got a particle splitter. <laughs> You know, so it should be a lot of fun, and hopefully it'll be kind of sweet because you know you get the family part, and then you get fun superhero part, and then you know, and the superhero he has like he's part of a team, and so I get to work with different you know team dynamics. Mm. One of the things that he does is is a mentor to uh, these teens that have superpowers, and they're called the teen agents. Okay, they're these seventeen year old kids that got superpowers, and you know they're full of of, of that teen goodness where they want to do everything thing and they think they're always right and uh of course they're not and they make all kinds of quick mistakes and, i have a, uh, i have a 14 year old i completely understand okay you know, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know they're smarter than us uh-huh <laughs> yeah like, you know well you know when you can start paying pay my uh, uh mortgage then uh, you can be smarter than me okay <laughs> <laughs> perfect uh, <laughs> and then also uh we find out that like um the superhero, his grandfather used to be a superhero also, and he was the night knight because he was a knight at night and he wore like, <laughs> armor. That's <laughs> and, awesome. Uh, and uh, so, so he he wants to have one big hurrah, so he goes out to fight his his old nemesis, the Quip, which is basically like a cross between Zorro and 
the Joker. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Because he, he has quips. He's, ha-ha, he's funny, you know. Right. And, he has, and, and I always remember, you ever remember a movie called um, Zorro the Gay Blade with George Hamilton? I'm going to give you a real quick aside here that you're not going to believe. So, uh-huh. we, folks, for, folks at home who are hearing this in November, we're actually sitting down talking in August, which just so happens to be Zorro Month on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Oh, right on. So we're talking about Zorro all throughout this month, and I just rewatched Zorro the Gay Blade about five days ago. The movie <laughs> is insane. It's the first time I ever got exposed to Zorro, and I was about, uh, I guess, nine years old. And George Hamilton in both roles, whether it was Bunny Wigglesworth or uh, <laughs> Don Taylor Vega, I absolutely thought he kicked all the ass. He was so cool. So, yeah, so I remember cool. that movie. <laughs> Dude, he, oh, man. Oh, Brenda Vaccaro. <laughs> yes! She's hilarious in that movie. I mean, there's so oh. many things. There's so many things wrong with that movie also from a modern oh, day perspective, yeah. but who cares? Oh, it's yeah. just funny as hell. You could not do that movie now. Oh my God. So you keep hitting all my yeah. hot buttons here, man. All right. So I'm sorry. So you were asking <laughs> me if I remember Zorro the Gay Blade. Yes, sir. I do. Yeah. So, you know, because he has the whip. Right. You know? Right. Oh, that's awesome. So, so, so I'm like, okay, it's the quip. Okay. That's it. So anyway, so they, you know, have a clash and then they realize that they were both doing it because they've just been sort of put on the shelf mm-hmm. and they're old. And so they decided to move in together. And so I'm thinking, oh, well, that's great. Oh, so the, like, the, the, the retired night night and the quip are living together yeah so oh my gosh <laughs> so they become like the, like the odd couple perfect but they solve crime so they're like the cross between the golden girls and the odd couple uh and grumpy old men so, this is awesome so hopefully i'll get a chance to do all of this uh, and i'm thinking that it should be like in like a like a graphic novel instead of trying to do like you know issue per issue because i, I mean who knows what the comic industry is going through right now so i don't know if issue per issue is even a realistic model anymore yeah you're you're right there so so for the folks at home that want to get this any thoughts on and again because they're going to be hearing this months from now yeah. any, any thoughts on I mean obviously they can keep up with your social media to find out where but are, are you expecting a digital release a physical release comic yeah, shops well, what do you I, think I, Kickstarter I want, to, I want to do both I want to do all, all of the above basically uh, I'm going to, going to do a Kickstarter to get it started off okay but we're going to, we're, we're going to I'm going to try to work with one of the publishers either Dark Horse or um, IDW to uh, have physical copies mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll also have digital copies so, so that way if people who love books in hand can have a book in hand and the people who just you know want to read it it can you know it can be on there and also we're going to kind of do something a little bit different and kind of give each of the the teams that are going to be working on these books their own social media so that the characters can keep up with because i think having like like especially like teenagers they grow up in this era and so you know everything is about being on on video oh yeah and, uh, you know and, uh, and social media and, and comments and stuff like that so to have those characters be a part of it you know uh, part of the story will be you know in the comic book but part of the you know some of their personalities and stuff will be in uh, uh, on social media so they'll have their own web page and their own um, Twitter and, and Instagram and so uh, we'll also and that'll be also where we put like extra art from mm-hmm. uh, I got a lot of different artists that have uh, said they're going to uh, do a, a piece for me oh fantastic and, uh, so yeah so it's going to have some good folks up in there well this is exciting I've seen some of the pieces you posted on Facebook and they and again I go back to that word joy I mean they're just you see the joy and you see the love between the superhero and his husband I mean it just it really captures the imagination and I can't wait to see it do you have like a a ballpark when you think people might be able to get their hands on it hopefully it'll be ready in January okay great basically what I'm gonna do right now is finish all like the first four issues before we start to go into print and good idea I, you know yeah because one of the things
things I always hate, you know, a, you know, you get a book come out and you and you buy the first issue and second issue and then you got to wait a long time for that third issue and it's like I don't think that's a good marketing, especially when you're when you don't have any other books to sort of placate your, your schedule, you know, in the meantime, you know. So as an independent contractor, you kind of have to have as much of it done as you can, and this sort of takes into account any kind of mix up that could happen between now and and, and January. Mm-hmm. So that gives you know as I finish the issue and I can look at it. I've cut to the point in my career where I like to draw something and I like to sit on it for like a week or two before I put it out. So I can look at it and go, okay, this sucks. You know, <laughs> let, let, let me go fix it, you know? Because sometimes you're so excited. Like, oh my God, look at my ugly baby. And they're like, you know, it's like, no, no, you know, wait till that baby has filled in a little bit. I don't need to see the prune face baby. I want, oh my gosh. You know, wait you know, wait till he's plumped up a little bit and got a little color on him, you know? Like, oh, now he's a, now he's a baby. Like before he was like a little prune, but now he's like plumped out. Like, okay. You know, you know what I mean? As a parent, I love the analogy. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I do. I really do. I a lot of friends who have kids, and I, I've seen a lot of ugly babies. Oh, yeah. You know, they look great now. Sure. You know. But, it, it you is, know. Those first few hours are not pretty. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So, folks, we, we're not done. We got more to talk about here, but you're going to want to watch Joe's social media for when these books come out, and we'll be sure to shout it from the rooftops ourselves when these things are well, going to be available. You. Absolutely. And the Kickstarter will be sure when you, when that gets rolling to let everyone know as well. We want to get the support behind this thing. Now, That's great. Now, if you well, let me ask you just a hypothetical. If you were tomorrow to return to the mainstream comic industry, you know, because there's a lot of upheaval in there, whether it's publishing or just internal strife and everything. What what's one change you would want to bring to that industry? Ooh, um, purpose. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because the thing is, like, every story under the sun has been told. What is the purpose of the characters and why are they doing it? Because, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's one of the reasons I originally didn't understand Superman because I didn't get him. You know what I mean? But I I didn't get him because at the time I didn't understand what his purpose was and like now I think I know more what his purpose is than what a lot of people imagine it is you know and I think that makes sense the same thing with Batman or any number of characters like you know why are they doing it and and at what point does it make sense so like you like you know like you take the X-Men for example you have a character like Storm Mm -hmm. and you know we know every year that California has uh, these wildfires does she go to California every year to help put out fires or is she just you know, or, or she's just having drama with something else. Where's the balance between, you know, a person that, you know, that you look up to because they stand up for what's right and wrong at the same time, you know, how do they give back to the community? You know, I mean, so I, so I think sort of taking like almost any character that I would want to work on, it, it would be why are we telling these stories or what is this supposed to be about? You know, is it about family? Is it about community? Is it about, I, you know, self-identity? And it can switch around. I mean, it doesn't have to be one thing or another, but, you know, but, but a lot of times the world changes and the characters don't change because mm-hmm. at what point does it make sense for this person to be a certain way and as opposed to what's actually happening in the real world and people have solved this problem already and so modern people can't understand why they're looking at this character under a certain light when when they can solve the problem better simpler than what you know than what this character is there for so you've got to give the character 
you know, a new reason to, you know, to why he wants to do this. And, you know, I mean, if if, if Batman's whole issue is that he has parent issues, <laughs> you know, it is. I was like, why isn't he out there helping other kids deal with parent issues? Right. You know what I mean? Right. You know, that's his wheelhouse. There, there could be stories that are in development because of that, where maybe he has, you know, that he is a funder of the Gotham or- Orphanage, or he has like a, you know, big brother, little brother, you know, group of folks that go out and help, you know, underprivileged kids or, you know, people who are in uh, these criminals who have families, you know, that they, you know, they help take care of their families while they're incarcerated. There are things to make that character more tangible. Mm hmm. And still interesting. At least I think so. Those are all great ideas. And and I think a lot of the comics really need something like that to make it a little more relevant. So I, I love those. And I wish you could uh, somehow inject some of that into the mainstream comics nowadays. By showing it. I hope, hopefully within my books, I'll show that. You, you take the Justice Society. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the old, the old characters and nobody's been really using them. And, you know, what are they doing? You know, they can't really go do the same things that they used to do. Mm-hmm. But they, they still have value. Do stories about that because you have readers in comics that started out as 16 year olds now they're 40 and 50 years old and they're trying to see you know to see their own relevance so you have these characters that can uh, reflect that information valid points i i think about the jsa quite often they're some of my favorite characters and you're right taking someone a character out of the 1940s and put them in today and figure out a way to still make them relevant and make sense and not just be uh, a caricature of what they were back then it's a great idea you know and and also maybe there's some issues that they had back then that they couldn't talk about yeah know? definitely definitely Definitely. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement as far as the types of stories that are available. All right, so we're going to go from the very, very serious to the a little bit of tongue in the cheek here. We're going to do our lightning round. So you ready? I'm going to give you five seconds to answer each question. Oh no, I'm terrible. <laughs> All right, the pressure is on. All right. All right. So first question: What action figures are on display in your studio right now? Spider-Man, <laughs> Captain America. Uh, Wonder Woman, I've got the. I, I, I'm a huge co- uh, collector of one six figures from Hot Toys. Oh, so I've, got, I've got all the Justice League. I've got all the Guardians of the Galaxy. I've got that brand new huge Juggernaut, and I got uh, you know a bunch of different Spider Man. So I have my own little Spider Verse and the Miles Morales figure. So nice. I don't have just one. <laughs> uh, I'm looking at uh, all of them, and I'm also I'm also working on a, a custom of uh, Cheetah because I just saw her uh, on the new Wonder Woman in the trailer. trailer. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm making a custom of her out of some uh, extra doll parts. So. Sweet. Kit bashing for the win, man. Awesome. <laughs> I know. There you go. All right. Next question. You have professionally drawn both DC's Timberwolf and Marvel's Wolverine. Now, there's yes. a long history of fan arguments about which character stole the most ideas from the other one. So, A, which one ripped off the most ideas? And B, which one's the most fun to draw? The most fun to draw was what? <laughs> the most fun to draw is Timberwolf. Of course. Duh. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I think that Wolverine came first, and nope. then Timberwolf. Tim- Timberwolf nope. came first, but they, uh-huh. but they, they've both been through so many changes. People argue, oh, well, he stole that idea from him. True, but you, you know, and uh, Wolverine has had more personal development yeah. than Timberwolf. All right, fair enough. Yeah. The the judges have ruled that's an acceptable answer. All right, fair okay. enough. All right. Next question: Do you own any superhero pajamas? Uh, yes. Perfect. You don't. You yes. don't. You don't have to go any detail if you don't want to. <laughs> 
Batman boxer shorts. There you go. Awesome. I, I had several pairs of Marvel and DC pajama pants myself, so I get it. <laughs> All right, next question. So you have created some amazing homages. These, these wonderful posters, superhero movie posters that are all Golden oh. Age of Hollywood actors. These things there are go. gorgeous, dude. So what Golden Age Hollywood actor would you cast in the role of Mr. Miracle? Oh, wow. That kind of goes pretty easy. It, it would be uh, Gene Kelly. Ooh, okay. Man, okay. He's got the smile. He's got the personality. He's he's limber and mo- and uh, you know just as, as he's dancing, you know I can see him dancing throughout these handcuffs and, and and shapes and stuff. Oh yeah, good call, good call. I like that one. All right, next question. So North Star from Marvel Comics. He came out in an issue of Alpha Flight in 1992 as the first openly gay superhero at Marvel Comics. Now, okay. question to you: Was that particular issue of Alpha Flight was it a very brave move by Marvel, or was the issue itself a complete bungled mess? A uh, complete bungled mess yeah <laughs> i think so because he kind of already came out i remember john Byrne had you know he was hanging out uh, in the background of alpha flight with you know on a veranda with with some cute guy and 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 a girl and uh he just kind of had that attitude so you knew he was out anyway before he said before they said anything just the way they did it in that comic it just seemed like pandering yeah you know at the time i got it i was so excited i was like all right finally you know and and now in hindsight you read it and you're like oh this is really cringe worthy uh well it's, yeah it's it's clunky because it was it was unnecessary mm. you know in, in the way you do it i mean there i don't know you know you know the coming out story is always so weird because so, there's some people who need to say something and there's some people who don't need to say anything mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and uh he you know he just seems so he was always so kind of like apparently he had to scream it in that one <laughs> yeah yeah but he was, he was already so arrogant he would just kind of go like oh you know you know he, he would be a lot more subtle than that he would just you know yeah. like you know, like, you know, me straight? Are you not paying attention? <laughs> you know? That does sound more like him, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, I, but you know. All right, next question. Who wins in a race? Speed Racer in the Mach 5 or Lobo on his Space Hog? Uh, unfortunately, it's Lobo because his, because he can bend space and time. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that, that's you know. So he wins by technicality. Fair enough. He he, he, he wins by technicality, yeah. You know, if, if he was in a car, it would definitely be Speed Racer, but. Perfect. Well, I figured you were the guy to ask, having drawn both of them. So, <laughs> so all right, next question. What is the most unusual thing? you've been asked to autograph and remember it's a family show (laughs) (laughs) Uh, a baseball really yes there's this uh, amazingly wonderful old woman uh, in Texas Uh, one year we gone down to Texas and she gets artists and writers and things to autograph baseballs and she has been collecting comic books uh, since she was a little girl and she has like copies of Spider-Man number one oh wow she has I mean, she and she brought it, in, it you know, in, in this little box and its case and everything, and showed us all these old comics. And she had baseballs, and she had us sign baseballs. And I thought that's really weird. <laughs> and so, so I, you know, I have signed a baseball. That is so interesting. Okay, I, I mean, that's got to be like a comic. You can put two hundred and fifty in a box or something on a good day. A baseballs, yeah. those are hard to store. So they wow. are hard to store. But I bet you that you know, I was like, hey, look, there's a Joe Phillips signed baseball, and then there's a you know, there's an Adam. Hughes baseball and there's, yeah. there's a Jim Lee baseball and you're like, okay. <laughs> That's super cool. That is really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Alright, next question. Of all the comics in your collection now that you were not involved in creating, which mm. do you personally treasure the most? 
it's a series. It's not just one comic book. All right. It is Walt Simonson's Thor run. Hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now that that I, you know, for some reason, it you know, it, it made me laugh. Mm-hmm. It was always exciting when he turned into a uh, turned him into a frog. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. Uh, he actually brought in Thor's goats, which you know, <laughs> you're like, wait, you, you know. So yeah, you know, which is you know, my type of humor. It's it, it. I still love that exceptional choice. And uh, Walt yeah. Simonson is always a win. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Last question in our speed round. Any favorite characters that you wish you had gotten the chance or still could have the chance to draw professionally? Uh, and actually, you don't limit. To, you don't have to limit yourself to comics. Could be anything. Well, we'll stick with comics. Probably Fantastic Four. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's family. Right. It's, right. You know, and I like the, fam- the family dynamic. And also, they're adventurers as opposed to superheroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, there's always weird stuff. I'm a, you know, I love physics. I love quantum physics and forces of the uh, universe, and so I, I, I love dabbling in concepts like that. So to, to to work on that book would be so much fun. I could totally see that you would rock that book, and uh, I, I would definitely bring back that Kirby crazy pages where <laughs> you know his his devices were always different per per issue. It's like mm-hmm. you know it wasn't like an established. Well, this is what the Baxter Building looks like now. That's what this panel looks like. <laughs> the next, <laughs> you know the. Next next panel can look totally different you know, <laughs> you know what does that machine do who knows right exactly <laughs> Awesome. So I think that, that'd be fun to draw. Well, sir, you have survived the lightning round. Well done. Well done. So we, we know to watch out for I Married a Superhero. Could you tell yep. the folks at home uh, where to keep up with you as far as on social media, your website, all that stuff? Where can they where can they follow Joe Phillips and not in a creepy uh, way? Yeah. Well, you can follow Joe Phillips at Joe Phillips on Twitter. You can follow Joe Phillips Art on Instagram. You can follow Joe Phillips at JoePhillips.com. And you can follow Joe Phillips on Facebook. Facebook. Awesome. Think, yeah, that, and uh, also on Kickstarter, I'm re-releasing my tarot cards. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, again, that, uh, the first batch sold out, and everybody's been asking for more, so I'm like, okay. Very cool. Yeah. Well, folks, be sure to follow those social medias. Again, keep up with everything Joe's doing right now. I can personally vouch his Facebook feed is awesome. Uh, the, just, again, this Golden Age posters or any new piece you're working on or the I Married a Superhero stuff, all of it is just fantastic. I, I love well, it. Well, thank man. you. Hopefully there'll be some more really, you know, fun pieces because I keep thinking of more golden age uh, movie ideas, you know. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) There'll be more of those up too. Well, fantastic. Well, Joe, thanks again for being on the show. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. I know the folks at home really appreciate hearing from you. My pleasure. Wow, that was awesome. Joe was great, wasn't he, folks? Oh, recording that discussion was an absolute blast. Oh, I want to send a very special thank you to Joe Phillips for appearing on this episode of the show. I really, really enjoyed chatting, and I appreciate his insight on his career and Justice League International Special Number 1. Now, folks, we're going to skip the normal feedback segment that we do here uh, because it's a meanwhile episode, but it will return next episode. With that said, that's going to do it, folks. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America Number 36 and Justice League Europe Number 12. And we'll have two more guests guest host to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. Seriously, you haven't figured this out by now? You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag, and you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? <laughs>